0: From Variety, celebrating more than 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. It was a strange experience writing the script, casting
1: it, scouting it, then having to stop going into the quarantine with the rest of us like we all did, and then every other day getting texts from uh, department heads or cast going, oh my god. Did you see this just happened? This is in your script. And then three days later, oh my God, this just happened. This is in the script. But you know, I don't I don't think I'm exactly no It's you know, clearly our society you know, been teetering and careening and collapsing for a, a good chunk of
0: time now. Adam McKay's new film, Don't Look Up, looks at how the government might ignore a doomsday crisis. It was written pre-pandemic, but then things kept happening in the real world that were just like in the script. I'm Janelle Riley. On this episode of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Adam McKay about his new film, Don't Look Up, and how it cuts perhaps a little too close to home at times. Plus, he details how Meryl Streep improvises and so much more. It's all next on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Meryl Streep is just one of the heralded stars in Adam McKay's latest film, Don't Look Up, which chronicles two low-level astronomers, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, who try to warn the world of an incoming comet that will destroy the Earth. They are met with obstruction from Meryl Streep's President of the United States and Mark Rylance's greedy tech guru, along with indifference from the media, namely hosts played by Tyler Perry and Cape Blanchett, and skepticism from the public. It's a film that could not be timelier, and yet manages to wrangle huge laughs from the darkest of timelines. I heard there's an asteroid or a comet or something that you don't like the looks of. Tell me about it. You got 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Go.
1: Uh, A comet between 5 to 10 kilometers across that we estimate came from the Oort cloud, and using Gauss's method of orbital determination and the average astrometric uncertainty of point zero four whoa
0: whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. i'm so what?
1: bored just tell us what it is <laughs> seriously stop
0: what dr mindy is trying to say wow. is that there's a comet headed directly towards Earth. and
1: then what happens like a tidal wave it will be far more catastrophic there will there will be mile-high tsunamis
0: so how certain is this
1: there's 100 percent Certainty of impact. Please don't say a hundred percent. We just call it a potentially significant event. But
0: it isn't potentially going to happen.
1: Ninety-nine point seven eight percent, to be exact.
0: Oh, great. Okay, so it's not 100%. I'm going to call it 70% and let's just, let's move on. But it's not even close to 70%. Let's just use like 60% as a working number. Okay, we're going to get our own scientists on this, you know, no offense. Dr. Mindy is a tenured professor of astronomy at Michigan State. I'm sorry, did you say Michigan State? Exactly, they have an excellent astronomy department. <laughs> you
1: say so. You want to see my SAT scores? score? I'm sorry, who is she?
0: Are you her son.
1: I'm oh. chief of staff boy with the dragon tattoo, so I'm doing fine.
0: How many tampons can you put in that bag? As many as I want. At this very moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit
1: tight and assess. Sit tight and and assess.
0: You want us to sit tight. And then assess. McKay also details the best note he ever got from a test screening for his first film, Anchorman, which he credits with helping make the movie a hit. He revisits some of his favorite moments from Saturday Night Live, and he talks about putting together the amazing cast of Don't Look Up, a film that continued to prove more prescient every day. We began by talking about movies with important issues and using comedy to guide audiences in.
1: I didn't use it as camouflage. It, it's, you know, I'm a big believer that these subjects actually aren't really medicine, like something like The Big Short or The you know uh, Vice or... Uh, these are really fascinating subjects that I think we're told that they're boring. I think they're sort of presented to us as like, ah, don't worry about the stock market. It's a bunch of boring numbers. And then meanwhile, every third person loses their house. Like, so I, I, I really believe this stuff is exciting. I really believe that the times that we're living through right now. Are both terrifying and really funny and absurd and farcical. Um, so no, it's a very natural outgrowth of just thinking about these times and how do you tell this story? And I find myself on a daily basis. Laughing really hard at certain things while also being terrified or dispirited by certain things. And, and I, I think it's okay to have all those feelings. So that, that was kind of the drive of the movie. I, I just thought, man, wouldn't it be nice if we, after being pummeled, absolutely pummeled by the last five, 10, 20 years, if we could actually look at the craziness and laugh a little bit, but then still feel the sadness and still feel the the more complicated feelings. So uh, that's what it came out of quite naturally.
0: Do you think there's anything that that couldn't be funny? Oh, that is a really good question. (laughs) I'm
1: going to say no. I think anything can be funny. I mean, the. The ones that jump to mind are like full on genocides. Um but you know, Benini did a, a, a kind of a comedy about the Holocaust. I mean, remember that movie? What was it called? Life is
0: Life is Beautiful. Life- death Death of Stalin. I was laughing and horrified. Oh,
1: Love that movie. Laughing hard at that movie. Um I think you can do a comedy about anything now. now it doesn't mean that it's easy, uh, but you are right. Like Death of Stalin is like one of my all-time favorite comedies, that, and and we don't even know how many people Stalin killed—somewhere between twenty and forty million people. So, and brutal torturing and uh, just awful reign of terror, and that movie. Oh my god. When uh sees the the bishops walk in, the cardinals walk in, he goes, "Uh, Who invited those freaks? Uh, I laughed, I laughed like 40 times watching that. I would say, In the Loop, too, Build Up to the Iraq War, really funny movie. I would say, I mean, is there anything more depressing than that sort of corporate cubicle work environment and office space? is one of my all time favorites. So no, I, I, I think truly without exaggeration, anything can be funny. It's just degrees of difficulty.
0: I mean, I absolutely agree, but there's also some things I, I just personally won't touch. Cause I don't think I'm adept enough to handle them.
1: <laughs> same here, by the way, same here. I'm not, I'm not saying I, Adam McKay can make any subject funny. I'm just saying there, there probably is a way uh, and it all depends on the distance, the tone, what element you zero in on. Um, but there are a bunch of subjects I'm not about to try and make funny.
0: <laughs> so the thing that's kind of crazy, though, is that this movie is so prescient. And yet you wrote it pre-pandemic.
1: I did. Uh, it, it's uh, It was a strange experience writing the script, casting it, scouting it. Then having to stop going to the quarantine with the rest of us, like we all did. And then every other day getting texts from, uh, department heads or cast going, Oh my God, did you see this just happened? This is in, in your script. And then three days later, Oh my God, this just happened. This is in the script. But, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm exactly Nostradamus. It's, you know, clearly our societies you know, been teetering and careening and collapsing for for a, a good chunk of time. Now, it's just seems to be re- reaching some sort of terminal velocity at this point. But, you know, when you see someone lean against a giant stack of crystal glasses and they start to wobble, it's not too hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, so I, I just didn't know it would be a pandemic even though plenty of climate scientists were predicting that pandemics would become more common. Uh, we don't know if this pandemic is tied to the climate, but, um, but no, I, I definitely did not see it coming in the shape and form that it came in and for it to be so huge and, and murderous and for so many people to die. I mean, I don't know if you know, but our music supervisor on the movie actually passed away. How Wilner. I not know. Um, I didn't know old friend of mine i've known Hal for 25 years since back at snl so the movie's dedicated to him in the credits we give him that dedication but but yeah i mean this this thing just whacked uh, every single one of us uh right in the face uh in a way that was uh yeah was jarring and surprising giving the movie given the movie that we were making
0: did he pass away from COVID?
1: yeah oh uh, yeah
0: horrible Um, there are, are he wasn't that
1: old either. He was, what was how like 61, he was in good health, had 14 year old son, got it. And then like three days later was done was one of those ones that came really fast.
0: I'm curious, did you add anything after post pandemic? Because the the one thing for some reason that I keep focusing on is, um, I don't want to spoil the cameo, but people who wear sort of these both sides, uh, buttons with arrows pointing <laughs> up and arrows pointing down. Like, it's okay to, like, have your beliefs. You know, Not everyone is right sort of a thing. And, like, I really thought when this pandemic started, like, science will win out and everybody will gather together. And it'll be like 9-11. We're all on the same side. And then just to see people dismiss facts was so horrifying.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that joke in the movie, you know, that I think we can say that there's a movement of there are. You can see the comet in the sky. So there's a movement of just look up Mm -hmm. and immediately there's a counter movement. Don't look up. You don't tell me where to point my eyes. And that was in the script before the pandemic. But that's definitely uh, making fun of these people that don't want to say one side or the other because they want to keep their audience or their market share, or they want to make sure they can sell advertising or <laughs> you see these people. Or then there's some people that act like, oh, you know, I'm a moderate. I'm above the fray. And you're like, the fray is, you know, we should get vaccinated. The fray is climate change is real. Um, and Um, And these people that act like they're kind of above it. So we're sort of having some fun with that. And at the same time. Uh, poking fun at ourselves at Hollywood and the film world, which I'm definitely a part of.
0: (laughs) I always want like, I almost respect someone who says don't look up more than someone who says, oh, you know, both sides have points.
1: I totally agree. I, I had a guy from some paper when we were doing Vice who went on and on about what a moderate he was How he wasn't either side. And I just said, I was like, man, what world are you living in? I get, because what you realize you, you realize is it's a self protective thing. He's just protecting his career. He's trying to like create this place of neutrality, which with some of these issues just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you gotta you gotta go with data and science. And if you're playing middle of the road on that, I think you're right. It, in a way, it's more cowardly.
0: It's and and they're proud of that. They're proud to say like I'm not going to pick a side. I don't believe yeah. it.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of those voices you you see them out in our culture who act like they're free thinkers because mm-hmm. they'll entertain some preposterous idea and then occasionally entertain some other idea and you're like, no, you're just you're playing an audience. That's all you're doing. It's very cynical.
0: Yeah, just above it all. That's something that makes me crazier than anything. That and smugness um uh you know i think a lot of people first of all i should tell you i'm in the market to like looking for a new home and every single realtor has to bring up the big short and it's like it makes me crazy every time i'm like yes i've seen it don't don't tell me that now is a bad time to buy don't tell me we're due for another big Short. i I just want to buy my house um, but, or dream, dream of a house, more likely a condo. Um, but I think a lot of people were surprised when you sort of pivoted into, I don't even want to say serious material because that's not accurate. But I feel like even back on Saturday Night Live, you know, the George W. Bush sketches, you were always political. Is that fair to say?
1: Oh, yeah. without a, I mean, I, I, I started really in Chicago. I'm originally from Philly uh lived in Massachusetts for a while, but when I really started doing comedy or theater sketch or improv on a regular basis was Chicago and built into that scene of second city, I O Del Close. And then we started the upright citizens brigade was always the idea that you're doing comedy, but you want to be commenting on things. I mean, that's the whole tradition of Chicago. So all the stuff we did there was always mixing in, uh critique uh, you know social satire politics uh gender relations race i mean those were always elements in what we were doing um and then certainly Saturday Night live has a tradition of that as well with their political cold opens and and so i did i wrote a lot of those and and i've always been fairly active uh did a lot of work with the unions when i was in chicago did a lot of uh, political street theater and I've always loved that tradition. Uh, and you know, with the upright citizens brigade, the early version of it, it would sometimes veer into political street theater and then more towards sketch so yeah it's it's always been part of who i am and I, and I think the big thing when people are like oh my god you got serious it's just like no the world changed yeah. uh believe me I, i've never had more fun in my life than making stepbrothers i would go home after every day of shooting i'd be sore from laughing i could have done that for another 35 years but it just made no sense with where the world was at. It would have felt weird to keep repeating those movies um, because that just wasn't the world we were in anymore. So I always just look at it like an adaptation. I just think, you know, comedy is always evolving. I think it's trying to find its footing right now because the world's, you know, rocking and teetering and in such a moment of seismic change that it's very hard for comedy to kind of find its footing right now. Um, but to me, that that's all it is. It's just responding to extremely unusual historic times. Um, it, it seems like it would be strange not to.
0: I'm going to I'm going to do a deep cut here because you once told me um, that I don't know if it was the first sketch you ever wrote on Saturday Night Live or just one of them. The um, old glory robot insurance where Sam <laughs> Waterston is is selling insurance against robots to old people. Um, and I, I told you that I told Sam Watterson that you who who wrote that sketch and he kept calling you that kid. He was like that kid, the the guy that did vice is that kid from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say, like, even something like that is like skewering elder abuse and skewering, you know, these these um, hoaxes, you know, that that are perpetrated on, you know, the the most, you know people who like need our help vulnerable, um, among vulnerable what I'm looking for It's
1: always okay. interesting to see which actors when they get to that age are going to be like all right give me the money for the reverse mortgage ads give me the money for the bogus life insurance yep and you you see the commercial pop up and it's like you took that check didn't you and, mm-hmm. and a lot of them tend to be like uber patriots who are always yep. flag waving like Tom Selleck you know like Dude, you're, you're grifting on the elderly. Like, come on. Uh, I keep waiting for Lou Dobbs to pop up in one of those. Like, where is, why isn't Lou Dobbs done one of those? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's the fun of SNL and that's the tradition of that show too. I mean, we did one that's one of my favorites called the Hulk Hogan talk show. And it was uh, this big. Uh, I, I, people should watch it. I think it's online. You can see it. It is. It is <laughs> it's a big build up. How it's the Hulk Hogan talk show. It's images of Hulk Hogan, and then we cut to the set, and it's Will Ferrell just in a regular suit saying mm-hmm. Hulk Hogan's on vacation. I'm your guest host, Ted Bessman, and he wants to do something different with the show. He wants to talk about to Anthony Edwards, who's playing a guy who was held hostage in Bosnia by extremists and they're trying to talk about the rise of extremism in the world which once again, this sketch was written in 1995, 1996. And, but the format of the show keeps interrupting with like animated graphics of Hulk Hogan going, you're pinned chump. <laughs> and then they have to go to the pin of the week. And, and the host, Farrell is like, I'm so sorry. This is the format of the show. And meanwhile, Anthony Edwards is very emotional about this traumatic experience. He's had, he's trying to warn us about rising extremism. <laughs> and that's a sketch which I always look back at like, wow, that's a little freaky. That one, uh, uh about four or five years, it was five years before nine 11. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, just around the time of Timothy McVeigh and, and now to see the extremism rise, but also a very funny sketch. It really mm-hmm. made me laugh, but, um, but yeah, SNL is great for that. I mean, Lauren encourages that he wants the sketches, to have a little bit of bite to be calling stuff out while at this same time hopefully being funny
0: i remember the hulk hogan sketch very well it's all about the children
1: <laughs> <laughs> always a friend the of the children. children
0: friend of the children it's that's that's
1: it yeah. one of the lyrics in the opening song very that's yeah. right
0: that's right very good. after the break more from adam mckay from los angeles this is the awards circuit podcast And we're back. It's the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast. I'm Janelle Riley. We're talking to Adam McKay, director of the new film Don't Look Up. As our conversation continues, I ask him about test screenings and reactions. What's the worst note you can recall ever getting from a test screening?
1: In any movie? Ever? In any movie. Well, on this movie, I did hear one person say, and by the way, I, I should clarify it was not typical, but there was a older woman in one of the focus groups who said, the, the, the moderator said, well, what, what didn't you like about the movie? And a woman raised her hand and she said, I didn't like how political it was. And, and, and then the woman said, well, how was it political? And she said, I didn't like how it kept telling us we have to listen to science. And I remember a bunch of us just dropped our heads. We were like, "Wow, yeah. wow, wow. Uh, that was a good one." Yeah. Um, as far as worst notes, well, I'll tell you the funniest one was, <laughs> which was a correct note. It was the first movie I ever directed, Anchorman. And we had this silly scene where Jack Black kicks a clearly fake dog off a bridge. I mean, it's the worst looking fake dog. I love dogs. Right. And it's a ridiculously silly looking thing. And we never brought Baxter back in the end of the movie. We did a joke where it was clearly another dog. And Bernie yeah. just acted like it was Baxter. And it was like a Doberman pitcher. And uh, Fred Willer was like, let him have it. Yeah, And the whole movie had gotten raucous laughs the entire time. Afterwards, the DreamWorks people were shaking my hands. One of the funniest movies ever. And then the scores came in. And, you know, scores aren't the end all be all. But when they're extreme, they do tell you something. And we had a horrible score. We got like a 50. And we were like, what? How can this be? And Terry Press, who was in charge of marketing at DreamWorks at the time, and by the way, not really a fan of the movie, if we're all being honest, <laughs> came up to me and said, you idiot, you killed the dog. <laughs> you don't so, do that. So we went and we did the reshoots and we brought Baxter back. And it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he talks yeah. to the bear. Yeah. And no joke, the next screening, we got a 76. We went up 26 points, which is a tremendous jump just off bringing the dog back.
0: I think people uh, are really fascinated, first of all, about how you put this cast together. I mean, it makes sense to me that some. it looked like it was fun to make. You know, it's something that they probably care about. But where did you get everyone you wanted? And did you find people were coming to you asking to be a part of it?
1: You know, it started with Jen Lawrence. Uh, I wrote Kate Dubioski for specifically for her. And then Teddy Oglethorpe, I wrote specifically for Rob Morgan. So those were the first two actors that were in and thank God they liked the script and they said, yes. And then the next thought was a pretty obvious one, which was when I was writing the president, I was always like every screenwriter on planet earth. I was thinking, what if we could get Meryl Streep for this? And, and you kind of think it, but you also think you're a little crazy because once again, every screenwriter on planet earth thinks that, but in this case she said, yes. And, and, So we then had a moment with Francine Nasler, our casting director, where we asked the question, which you do with all of these projects, you know, how many known names are too many? And you don't want the movie to be all recognizable giant actors. But then we had a moment where we were like, wait a minute. In this case, that actually serves the idea of the movie. The, (laughs) The movie is about... You know, bells and whistles, uh, clicks, ratings, celebrity culture, bright lights, uh, you know, careerism. And and so we we realize, like, no, I think we can keep going. Let's keep, you know, the trick at what had to be that they had to be. We wanted them to be great actors, not just names. Um, so we went on to Tyler Perry, Kate Blanchett, Himesh Patel is someone I was, I've always wanted to work with. I love that guy. Uh, and then I was like, let's try Timothy Chalamet for Yule, the evangelical uh, shoplifting park. And and Timmy was interested. And so it, it, it at that point we sort we completely embraced it. And it really started to feel like it was appropriate for this movie. Um, and thank God all these really talented, amazing generational actors knew exactly what we were trying to do with the movie, and they were they were hungry for something that was trying to process this uh, you know jackknife truck full of carp that is our current culture.
0: (laughs) Did you, how did you know um, Ariana Grande could act? I've seen her do comedy, so I'm not surprised, but I love, she has my favorite line in the movie, frankly, which I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it.
1: I think it's my favorite line too. (laughs) It's a damn good one. That and the other line I was just talking to a friend about, which never gets a laugh, but I don't care, is when the president says, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, or, or maybe it was Bobby Knight.
0: (laughs) I actually did laugh because I know you're doing the Lakers series. uh,
1: Bobby Knight also is just, Oh, oh my God. One of the, he's a piece of work. Anyway, uh, we knew that she could act. She had done a, a bunch of TV early on, but most importantly, I got on the phone with her. And, you know, you could just tell she's cool. Like, uh, did you know Ariana Grande supported Bernie Sanders? I didn't know that. I I didn't know that. And (laughs) and I, I just started talking to her and she was like really funny and cool and genuine and smart and really and totally got what the script was doing. Totally got the joke of Riley Bina, her character. But the, her, to me, her greatest moment is that we when she was working with Nick Bertel, they went in the booth yeah. or to scratch track for the song. And she started improvising this whole ending of the song about how we have to listen to the scientist turn off the the shitbox news. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. You can. You, you are can. absolutely allowed to curse. Oh, OK. <laughs> uh, and uh, and we're all going to die. And it was incredible because Not only is she improvising it, but she really does have one of the great voices of this time. So it sounded beautiful and powerful. And Nick sort of told me like, ah, she kind of did this thing. And I was like, oh, that's in the song. That's a keeper. Leave that in the song. And so, and then she improvised some other lines too in her scene. She improvised a a laugh when she was on the daily rip. Like she was, she was really cool, really a pleasure to hang out with. Um, such a treat. And then easily the coolest I've ever looked for my uh, 16-year-old daughter, Pearl, formerly of the landlord. Uh, her and Timothy, uh, Ariana and Timothy Chalamet. It's the only time Pearl's ever cared about anything I've done. I'm exaggerating. She likes movies, but she was really excited about that.
0: I've seen her um, yell at you on Instagram for embarrassing her. And I, I just, lo- I just love that kids like... You know they—they're not impressed by their parents. It's so great. They really—they really keep everyone humble.
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. She just, yeah, it's dad. He's doing his movie. Uh, he's got to go. You're doing the screenings and the Q and As. Oh God, like that's it. Yep.
0: I think she actually said one time, like, "Dad, stop it or take this down or something." <laughs> she would embarrass her, and I was like, "Oh God, it happens to everyone." my oldest
1: daughter my oldest daughter does really funny tweets like they make me oh, yeah. laugh out loud and so i retweeted one of her tweets and then, so then it started getting like hundreds of likes and she's she deleted the tweet she's like dad don't do that I don't need your. I don't need your retweets. <laughs> I was like Lily. It made me laugh. It was sincere. She's oh, like, Just man. Don't let me have my own life.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. These uh, kids are going to be okay.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's true
0: uh speaking of improvising, was there anyone who like surprised you like Mark Rylance is can do anything, so I would not be surprised to learn he was a great improviser, but I also think that Mark Rylance is someone that like we put in a box and we like you know unwrap him when we need like this amazing performance and then we put him <laughs> back in like i don't think of him as like a real human being um so I would love to know what he was like on set
1: incredible you you you're a hundred percent right you feel like when you 're talking to him. He's levitating about six inches off the ground at all times. And he's just, he's, he feels like he really is in a slightly different reality than the rest of us. And it's wonderful and glorious and filled with beams of light. And he is indeed an incredible improviser. He essentially improvises a whole monologue in the movie where he's describing his vision for what's going to happen if we can mine this comet. And he talks about going naked through the gates of Boaz and Joachim and, uh, you know, an interstellar future. That whole monologue he improvised. Um, yeah, he's incredible. The other one I'll tell you who has a serious fastball when it comes to improv is Meryl Streep. I mean, really all day long. I mean, we had a phone call at the beginning of that first Oval Office scene and I tried so hard to get it in the cut, but it didn't quite fit. Every single take, she improvised a completely different phone call that was screamingly funny. To the point where Jonah and I were like, because, you know, I grew up improvising. Jonah can improvise all day long. And I said to Jonah, Jonah, I can improvise a lot. I I don't think I could do that. And Jonah's like, oh, he's like, no way. I would do four and then I would repeat them. And I was like, that's what I would do, too. And I'm not exaggerating. She did 20 different words. I think we're trying to get. Uh, a package of it put together where you can see all the phone calls because we'll have to see if Meryl's okay with us putting it out there, but it is breathtaking. Uh And then throughout the whole movie, she's improvising the The whole cast was terrific. Chalamet was improvising all over the place. He has one of my favorite lines. Dr. Mindy, can I be vulnerable in your car? Uh, that was improvised. Uh, he had a bunch of great improv. So everyone was letting it fly. Jen Lawrence is hilarious. Bunch oh, yeah. of great improv. Leo letting it fly. Uh, it, yeah, it was. They're all such good actors. They know to keep it real grounded and in the scene. And if you do that you can improvise. It's only when people start going so far outside what the movie is that you get into trouble. But, but all these people had an innate sense for that.
0: Uh, Leo is such a good actor that, and not every actor can do this, that he actually can make you forget he's Leonardo DiCaprio because he's such a star that, you know, you spend the first couple of minutes going like, Oh wow, that's Leo. He's so magnetic. He's such a star and just playing like he's not a schlub per se, but he's playing like a pretty normal guy when the movie starts off and he pulls it off which is really an achievement
1: he's a little schlubby he's definitely a little schlubby he hasn't he's a professor hasn't published in a while yeah. he's kind of got a beard that clearly yeah. he's not styling his clothes are a little i mean he's he's I, I you know we talked about it he's the astronomy professor at michigan state who's not going on nova he's the one who's not you know, making TV appearances or presenting big papers, but he's good. He, you know, he, he studies, uh, gas releases from, uh, dead galaxies. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he's, he deals with some anxiety issues. Um, no, I think it's fair to call him a little schlubby. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, if You can say it. I, I, I I can't. <laughs> and you know, a friend of mine pointed something out that I thought was really cool. They were like, um, "I'm glad that a movie like showed a female president. Like that's really great, but also she didn't have to be perfect. She could be terrible too."
1: I mean, all the best roles are the terrible people. Yep. It's yep. so it's funny when you cast like you know. I think someone said that at one point. Is it weird having a woman president? Is so so terrible. It's like no. It's like the dream role. That's what yes. you want. I mean, you know, it's, it's so many times we get to see the men play the horrible villains or the scoundrels. Those are the enjoyable roles. So this was a fun movie in that sense that there are some really enjoyable, tasty roles like Kate Blanchett's character. Satch, yeah. a throat slitter, Manhattan, you know, glamorous, just media uh it just rips dr Mindy apart and uh and obviously the president is just fun as hell uh and then Jen's character too goes through quite the trial but but <laughs> she gets to have her adventures as well so yeah it's it, it it it's such a nice mixture of characters um all kinds of different tones that it it was really cool to see these actors play so many different notes i mean someone asked me. What is the tone of this movie? Because it's a very hard movie, yeah. tonally. And I said it away. Every actor's uh, had their own kind of job to complete to put together the whole tone. Like each actor represented a different part of it. Some like Jonah's a little more heightened and hilarious, and uh, Sora of Blanchett and Perry, but uh, but uh, Jen Lawrence is sort of the the moral conscious of the movie and very real and her reactions and, and same with Dr. Mindy, you can feel it. And then there's a character who's like from a different universe, like Peter Isherwell played by Mark Rylance. And then Chalamet is kind of real, but a little bit odd. So that each actor is really important that they sort of held their note so that it would all harmonize in the right way. And they did a magnificent job at it it's really uh, i was just so impressed with each of them as far as understanding where they fit in with this big epic story
0: and rob is oglethorpe is like shakespearean like he's 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 so good he's so commanding it's really i i, lo- I love him so much i'm so happy to say when i saw he got third billing under leonardo dicaprio and jennifer lawrence i was like you go rob morgan
1: Rob is Rob is like the rudder of the movie. I mean, Rob's voice of authority, that amazing voice, that that solid sort of wise, but but a little bit beaten up government bureaucrat. And and his his voice is what keeps the whole movie on course. He was he was essential. I mean, that's that's why I wrote the two first characters I cast were were Jen and and Rob Morgan. I had worked with them on the Lakers show and I was like, Oh my God, this guy's incredible. It was funny too, because we cast him and there was someone I knew who was like, wait, who's Rob Morgan. And then the next day the New York times came out with a list that was like 25 best actors working yes. today. And Rob was on the list and I was like, yes, Rob, um, yeah, he's he's for people that know he's another one of those like actors. Actor, um, so good.
0: Yeah, he's fantastic and just such a delightful person. <laughs> um, I would, uh, you know, uh, you've obviously you worked at Saturday Night Live, so you saw all the biggest names come in, and you've always had like really talented cast members. But is it ever intimidating? I mean, when you have Meryl Streep and Kate Blanchett on the same sets on the same day, and you know Mark Rylance waiting in the wings.
1: I think because of COVID, it was a great leveler. We were all a little freaked to be coming out of our caves and wearing our masks. And everyone was behind plastic shields. So, you know, it it never felt strange in that regard. Um I think initially when I first met uh, DiCaprio at my house, there was a little bit of like, oh, my God, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. But he's such a good guy that goes away after 10 minutes. The most intimidated I ever felt was on the big short where I I definitely was working with a different group of actors. And I remember when Brad Pitt showed up on set and being legitimately nervous. And I was like, I'm going to go get a cigarette. And I heard some crew member like go like he's nervous. And I was like, yeah, I am. (laughs) And and then, but then you learn it always melts away Mm -hmm. after like three minutes because, you know, for these people to be such great actors, they, they necessarily are collaborative and lovely and in tune. And I just, without any exception whatsoever, have found that to always be the case i mean you you know janelle from from covering movies being around movies from being a writer yourself everyone knows meryl streep is without exaggeration one of the most lovely people on planet earth like warm big generous laugh collaborative and and it's so boring i wish i could say terrible things about her but it, it really she really is i mean that really is the case you realize. All of her uh, success, all of her creative skills come from that that center of being a warm collaborative person.
0: I've heard I've never actually met her and like actually in the past there were like two times she was supposed to do Q and A's with me and like her flight didn't come in. or so, like it was it was like some crazy thing and I feel like Meryl is just like she keeps escaping my grasp. Although, But ah, I, I word it that way. It's it probably makes it sound like she should stay as far away as possible. Yeah,
1: she's never going near you now. So here's my when I first met Meryl, she showed up at the production office and I had spent the previous six months trying to find a ringtone for my phone that wasn't stressful. I wanted like a beautiful piece of music that was actually the opposite. That was calming. So I'd gone through all these different pieces of music and it was the quarantine. So it was kind of goofing around. And finally I had picked this one piece of just beautiful, slightly sad, but most mostly beautiful music completely forgot about it. Merrill comes into my office. You know, we've got the air filters. We're wearing our masks. We're sitting 10 feet apart and my phone rings and the piece of music that I had chosen is the the theme song from the Deer Hunter. And what? Really? I mean, it's an incredible piece of music. I actually don't think it was written for the Deer Hunter. I can't remember what it's actually called. I think you're right. It's a stunning yeah. piece of music. But in that moment, I look like the most sweaty stalkerish fan <laughs> ever because nice. of
0: the deer hunter i didn't even put that together oh God. yes
1: oh yeah and and she sits down and my phone is playing the themes and i had to let um it's not on here because you were coming it's actually because it's one of my favorite pieces of music and i and of course she was i i don't know if she believed me but um
0: i don't she, know if i believe you uh, <laughs>
1: Well, then the second craziest thing is I'm in the van with Linus Sangren, our director of photography, one of the great directors of photography. And my phone rings again. And he goes, what is that? And I said, uh, oh, it's my ringtone. He goes, why is that your ringtone? I said, I just was trying to find a piece of music that wasn't a strategy. It was, do you know, that was the song we played at my father's funeral? What? And I went, what? And it turns out Linus's dad was the big acquisitions guy for all the movies in Sweden and one of his favorite movies that he was famous for getting for distributing in Sweden was the deer hunter and his whole life. He loved this piece of music. And for like the next two days, Linus would just go, I can't believe that's your ringtone. <laughs> that's amazing.
0: <laughs> that's Adam McKay director of don't look up, which opens in theaters on December 10th and premieres on Netflix on December 24th. That's it for this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another all-new episode featuring the weekly Awards Circuit Roundtable and an interview with the director of Teton. The Award Circuit podcast is edited by Drew Griffith and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head over to variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz K, Clayton Davis, and Michael Schneider, I'm Janelle Riley. We'll see you on the circuit.